Well, good morning, church. Great to see you all. Praise the Lord. Y'all breathing all right? Well, amen. Oh, don't worry. It's a temporary measure. So we will one of these days get back to somewhat normal, as normal as people can be in Ross County. But anyway, we'll, we'll get there. Thank you for your patience and uh, just kind of walking through the paces with us. And um, sometimes I know you feel like things are inconsistent in how... Uh, rules and uh, uh, guidelines are applied. Well, there's a reason they're inconsistent. It's because they change daily. And uh, so we're doing the best we can to kind of walk you all through that. But I appreciate you being here. The worship is a priority in our lives. And uh, it continues on, whether there's persecution or pain or pandemic. We just do it all. So uh, just thank you for being here to worship together uh, as the people of God. I want to ask you now, get your Bibles, please. First Timothy is where we are, and this is a letter to the church at Ephesus. But uh, also, by implication, it is a guideline for churches everywhere for all time. And this is a book of order, really, is what First Timothy is about. It's about how to order the church rightly so that it functions correctly to the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. Now, Paul has given his credentials at the beginning of this little letter to Timothy. He's left Timothy in Ephesus that Timothy may help straighten out some problems in that great church at Ephesus. One of the great churches of of the Bible. And uh, we read about that church. Paul was there for, I think, about two years at one point. And uh, probably the longest he stayed anywhere and uh, established uh, this church in the faith. Uh, but now, as uh, all churches do, if uh, people don't keep their eye on it, uh, things go awry. And um, that's what's happened to this church in Ephesus. And Paul has begun the process of straightening some things out. And he's left Timothy there, uh, his young assistant. Uh, Timothy may continue that process to purify and get this church back on purpose. Now... Uh, the, the main problem appears to be that it's even some of the elders, some of the leadership of the church. So what do you do when the leadership starts leading wrongly? And you can see some of the things that are being addressed here are in particular to some, some leaders, some people that had some influence. I don't know if they were teaching elders in the church. I don't know if they were just longtime members. I'm not really sure what uh, all was going on, but they were people of influence And uh, so people worry a lot about if leaders go astray or go awry. And that's a good reason to worry, I I would say. But in my lifetime, I've seen a lot more members go astray than leaders. And uh, so our major concern needs to be that. But at the same time, 1 Timothy gives us a standard for leadership. What should the leadership be like? What should we aspire to? What are the, what are the, what's the resume of a, of a pastor and of a deacon before you would ordain them and appoint them to that office. Now, I've been involved in some churches that had bad pastor and one that had a bunch of bad deacons. Now, you talking about nightmare from Hades, that's just miserable. And it's a terrible thing, and uh, it's, it's not good for the church. Now, thank God, I, one church, it was just really pitiful, but I had one old saint of God, this one woman, and I won't call her name, but she ruled the roost. And uh, I made friends with her pretty quick. And she straightened those guys out. 
And uh, so it, uh, God always has somebody that will help you if you find them. And uh, so God uh, did a great work in that deacon body and turned it around. And as a result, turned that church around because the leadership was on track. And uh, so we're grateful for that. So, you know, God is, has instructions here for us. Now, there are never quick fixes in anything. Uh, making corrections in, in a church family, it's just hard work. It's just terribly hard. And uh, some of you know that. Some of you have walked down a, a, a little bit of a road with me here, and you kind of know how it is. It's not easy stuff to, to deal with some of this, these things. And many of you think I don't deal with it fast enough. And then others of you think I deal with it too harshly. And some of you think, you know, everybody has an opinion on how I ought to do it. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come put these shoes on for a while? And uh, then I'll tell you how you ought to be doing it, all right? So uh, just uh, all I could say for you is just pray for me. And uh, then one of these days, uh, maybe God will let you do this. And, and then um, I can sit back and, and have a good laugh at your expense. All right? So pray for your leadership. It's, it's just, these are hard days. They really are very, very difficult days. So I want you to be in prayer for your leadership. Now, I want to talk today about waging the good warfare out of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Now, the Christian life, it does have many tangible benefits that are wonderful. I mean benefits like peace and hope and joy. And Christianity gives order to the chaos of your life. It teaches you how to uh, lead your family and organize your family correctly. Christianity teaches you how to uh, have the right view of material things, including your finances and wealth that God places in your hands. So Christianity has a, a lot of personal and some even tangible benefits. And so sometimes... I believe that we fall off the edge there when talking to lost people or talking to ourselves about Christianity and we talk about all the benefits of it. There's a popular gospel track, uh, that uh, little booklet that you can give to people, and I don't see anything wrong with it. It's fine, but, but it does start out in this way. God has a wonderful purpose for your life. Now, that's a true statement. It is a true statement. But... The problem is that we begin to guide people into a Christianity that has no cost. It's a Christianity in which we never tell people, now, before you get into this, you need to count the cost. Because the builder doesn't start building unless he has counted the cost to make sure he can finish the building. So you, you need to count the cost. There's a cost to this. Let me tell you some of the costs that there's going to be. One, your family dynamics are going to change. Especially if you're the only believer in that family, some things are getting ready to get really, really hard. Secondly, when you go back to work on Monday, you, if you come to Jesus today and you go back to work tomorrow with that glow on your face and that skip in your step because you've got eternal life, guess what's going to happen? Old prune face prudy over there next to you. She's not going to like it one pop-eyed bit. And men, you know that when you go and you have that glow about you, if you've been in the presence of Jesus and you go to the assembly line, you know what's going to happen. The guys are going to conspire to tell dirty jokes around you, show you stuff that you don't need to see, try to tempt you away from your faith. This is a warfare. 
We don't tell people that, but we need to recognize this is a battle. Somebody said one time, man, Christianity is exhausting. Now you understand it. Because the warfare is waging against you all the time. If you're a follower of Christ, there is not a moment in which Satan is not scheming for your downfall. Around every turn, every thought, every decision lies an evil world system that seeks to lure your faith away from being solid in Jesus. Following Christ in this world is a war. Now, we have come through a period of time since the 1980s in which all of our singing has been about nice, fluffy things. It all feels good. And so we sing about all of that. I could sing of your love forever. Dear God in heaven. And so we've been through all of that. Have you seen the creepy commercial on TV about those, that kind of music? They're selling it on CDs now, you know, and you've got these two creepy Christians that are trying to sell it. It's just really amazing. I look back on that now and go, I actually sang that song before. And so there you go. So that's, that's been our, our, our theme, you know, that we're going to attract people that way. And tell them the Christian life is just about that. And we no longer sing things like onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going as before. See, we don't sing that because that might be offensive to somebody. That sounds too much like the Crusades or something, you know. So we don't sing that kind of stuff anymore. We don't sing songs about fighting the good fight and faith is the victory and so on. We don't sing those kind of things anymore because I, I praise God for Pastor Dan who turned us back to some worship songs that actually have some meaning and have spiritual and biblical content to them. So you feel like you're comfortable with singing the truth. I, I'd rather not know the song but know I'm saying the truth than to know the song well and be singing falsehood any day of the week. If I want to sing falsehood, I'll turn on the eagles or something. I'm just, I'm in a mood today. I've been through a week. The warfare that we have, though, is not physical violence. I wish that it were. But as Christians, it's not physical violence. That's not how we win. And let me just inform you of something else. The spiritual warfare that we're engaged in is not even a conflict between political ideologies. The spiritual warfare is not blue versus red. Let that settle for a moment. You are very passionate about something that is extremely temporary. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world and my kingdom will last forever. I would say to you, put your passion where it's going to matter and into a kingdom that's going to last. Everything else is temporary. The warfare that we have, it's a spiritual warfare in which the forces of Satan, here's, here's its, his whole purpose. The force of Satan, Satan is not out, spiritual warfare is not this. Somebody getting your parking spot at Kroger's. Have you read those nutty spiritual warfare books? Have y'all read some of those things? 
It's like that. Oh, Satan is at work. And you, you know, you're driving, you're driving down the road here and you, you, you get to Bridge Street and your car conks out. Oh, it must be Satan. No, you forgot to change your oil, dummy. You know, so, I mean, you know, everything's spiritual warfare. Your, your kids are crying. Oh, it's Satan. No, it ain't Satan. Your kids got a bellyache, had too much candy. I mean, you know, everything. So we think that spiritual warfare is about our personal inconvenience. That's what we think spiritual warfare is. Spiritual warfare is not about you. It is about Satan seeking to embarrass God. That's it. Now, sometimes that involves you because he uses you and me to embarrass God. So it, it, it is that. But when we're talking about fighting this warfare, we need to understand what we're battling. And Satan's design is to keep the souls of people enslaved to evil, to sin, and to Satan. That's his design. And as long as he can do that, it causes God to not receive the glory that he ought to receive. And Satan seeks to embarrass God before the hordes of hell so that he can look pridefully good and make God look like a fool. That's what, that's what spiritual warfare is about. So kind of remove yourself from that for a moment and realize this is about God. Now, here we have Paul saying to Timothy now as a pastor. As the main teaching elder of this church. He says now then Timothy. I charge you. And he says this charge. He goes in verse 18. And he says this charge. He already charged him in verse. in the Earlier in this chapter. But now he says now Timothy. This charge. I entrust to you Timothy my child. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. That by them you may wage the good warfare. Now. Timothy is being commissioned as an officer in the army. This is the Lord's army. He's being commissioned to fight. He's being commissioned to wage war against the falsehood and the lies of Satan. And so he's being enlisted here by Paul. And now he's being commissioned as an officer. Now, look at this. He says, Paul is saying to Timothy, now, there's a commission that you're going to have to accept. And that's what he says in, in verse 18. This is the commission I'm giving to you. And then he says in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. So what is it that is Timothy's assignment? The word charge here. He says, I, I charge you, Timothy. I, this charge I entrust to you. So he's using this word three times now. And so what does he mean by that? The word charge is a military term. And this is a military type order. It is not a suggestion. This is a call of duty. Now, many of you served in our military here in our nation. And you know, most of you were not officers. We have one or two, but most of you were not high-ranking officers at least. And you know that when your commanding officer tells you to do something, this is not a suggestion. This is your duty. Too many of us in the Christian life think that when Jesus tells us something, that it's a suggestion of his. That this is something you could do to make your life better if you would just listen. 
that Jesus is just pleading with you to try to make your life better. No, Jesus is the king. He is the commander in chief. And when Jesus tells us this is what we do, it is not a suggestion. It becomes our duty. The Great Commission is not a suggestion. The Great Commission is our duty. Every church that I go to, there's all kinds of shenanigans going on. Everybody wants to find an activity they want to do, paint Christian on it, and make it part of the church. And they usually get very disgusted with me when I tell them there's really only one assignment that we have. And the one assignment is to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That's the point of the church. When you get in the doorway class, I usually say to them, what does Chick-fil-A do? Now, it's interesting. They look at each other every time like, oh, wonder what the answer could be. This is church. I don't know. It's got to be something about Jesus. I didn't know. They, what they, what's Jesus and Chick-fil-A got to do with each other? So you usually have to give them the answer. They make chicken sandwiches. Is there anything wrong with a hamburger? No. I imagine the Kathy family eats a hamburger from time to time. But that's just not what they do. And it's a church you have to understand. It's just not what we do. We are in a war. And the battle that we have is the battle to make disciples. And Satan and all of his falsehood and all of his resistance is going to go against that all the time. Because every time someone becomes a follower of Jesus, it brings glory to God and it embarrasses the devil. So that's what happens in spiritual warfare all the time. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, I'm going to commission you now as an officer in this warfare. I don't think Timothy wanted it. But Paul told him, this is what you're getting. It reminds me of the call of John Knox, great Scottish preacher. And someone came to him and said, John, I, I think you're called to preach. He said, not me. I'm not called to preach. I'm not preaching anywhere. So the church behind his back got together and began to talk. And they talked to a, a, a preacher in town who had been filling in for him. And they said to this guy, listen, we as a church body believe Knox is called. So Knox didn't know anything about this. So John Knox comes to church on Sunday and the pastor gets up there and says to John Knox, I charge you in the presence of God and his holy angels preach the word. And he's like, I'm not preaching. You preach the word. And so that's how he got his call. Now, I wonder if I do that to somebody here today, how are you going to feel about that? Yeah. But it's a duty. And, and so Paul's given this duty to Timothy. Now, what's the source of the commission? He says, this charge in accordance with the prophecies before the New Testament was completed, the church had some prophets. And these people were, were given special revelation. The scripture had not been finished, written yet and put together. So they're given special revelation. They practiced this in the church. And so these men had said about Timothy, this man is being gifted by God to preach. And the elders of the church got together and agreed and said, yes, he is. And then finally, the church itself affirmed Timothy's call. But the commission did not come from the church. The commission did not come from the elders. The commission did not come from the prophets. The commission comes from God. And God is the one who had called him to preach. The church affirmed it. The prophets predicted it. And the elders ordained it. Timothy's commission, though, was from God. That's the source of this charge. The substance of the commission was to wage the good warfare. Satan attacks the church through false teaching. 
And these, this false teaching attacks the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Sometimes people honestly using good hermeneutical principles will have a difference of opinion on some particular issue. For example, what is the order of the end times? The second coming of Jesus. When does that happen? Is there a rapture or not a rapture? Is that figurative or whatever? And so people are going to have a genuine difference of opinion about some of those kinds of things. But there is no difference of opinion about orthodoxy. There's no difference of opinion about the core doctrine of the faith. There's no difference of opinion about the nature of God. There's no difference of opinion about the nature of man. There's no difference of opinion about the deity of Jesus. There's no difference of opinion about the workings of the Holy Spirit of God. There's no difference of opinion about the way that a sinner gets saved. These things are foundational. These things are orthodoxy. It's just what the church is. And so what we have is the substance of this commission is that you, Timothy, are going to have to uphold those things. The culture out there and sin in here never agrees with or promotes right faith. It never promotes the doctrine of the apostles. It never promotes right teaching. It never promotes orthodoxy. It is constantly a fight to uphold the flag of the Lord Jesus and say, this is the truth. This is the truth. Like it or lump it, it's the truth. And so it's a constant battle. So Satan is going to attack the Christian faith. Satan attacks the church by defaming its leaders. Sometimes he deceives leaders into defaming themselves. We've had plenty of that in our lifetime. Sometimes he defames leaders through lies. Causes leaders to lose influence, even to leave churches because they've been defamed by certain people that have influence among others. Y'all need to learn to recognize worm tongue. If you've never seen Lord of the Rings, take a look at it. People talk and talk and talk and they poison your soul. You need to find out what the facts are. The substance of the commission is that you've got to stop that stuff, Timothy. He also attacks families. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that Satan attacks families because healthy family life is the building block of a healthy church. And so he's constantly attacking families. That's like the little church. And so he's always attacking the families of the churches, trying to bust them up, lure them away, uh, get, cause apathy in their lives so they're just not that devoted to the Lord, cause discord and disharmony, uh, lack of discipline with the children, lack of teaching the children at home, and, and lack of order in the home, and listening to the, the impulses and the information of the culture. And so he's constantly attacking the families. Because he knows that that's what builds strong churches. And strong churches is what takes the gospel to the world. And the gospel goes to the world and people come to know Jesus. And people come to know Jesus and God is glorified. And Satan's embarrassed. And so he's, he's at the core of it all trying to, to, to bust it up. See, your happy, happy, healthy family is not about you. It's about the gospel. It's not about all the other stuff. It's about the gospel. And so Satan's always attacking. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got to watch out for these things because I'm telling you, these things are, is what Satan, these things are what he does. He does these things in the church. So what is the strategy of the commission? He said, what, what do you have to do, Timothy? What, how, how do you combat this? He says, it, he says it this way, holding faith and a good conscience. 
That doesn't seem very complicated, does it? It's not complicated, but it is impossible. Holding, he's talking about the faith, not holding on and being, you know, I've got a strong faith. He's talking about the faith, the doctrine of the apostles. Holding on to that and a good conscience. Faith here is correct doctrine. Correct doctrine matters. Why does correct doctrine matter? Because correct doctrine informs your conscience. What is it about the conscience? The conscience is what alarms you that your life is not aligning with the truth of God. If you do not intake healthy doctrine, your conscience will be misguided. And when your conscience is misguided, then your behavior changes. The conscience is informed by truth. Sometimes it's the cloudy truth of natural revelation out there. For example, you can look out there and see there is a God... And he is all powerful, evidently, since he created all these things. And so, you know, just by natural revelation, there's a God and you probably are going to have to give some kind of account to that God. And so that's true. And so that's why people in other places in the world, there, there is even in the worst of cultures, there's some morality there. Because of general revelation, natural revelation out there in which they're able to look around. They can look up at the sky and see the the universe. And they're like, man, there must be a great, huge God out there somewhere. And so that informs their conscience and it keeps them from doing certain things that without that they would do. So in every culture in the world, there's at least some sense of conscience about things that you ought not do. But you also have... As a Christian, the clear truth of specific revelation, that is the word of God. And when your conscience is informed by the word of God, then it acts as an alarm system in your life. At our house the other day, one of my family members came in the wrong door and the alarm went off. And I was not at home, but I got an alert of my email. Somebody is in your house. Proceed with caution. I wanted to email back, is he going for the refrigerator? If so, I know who it is. It's an alarm system to tell you something is not quite right. And so with the word of God, it informs your conscience. And if you correctly hold the doctrines of the faith, then you have a basis for a good conscience. On the other hand... If you neglect the truth and you starve your conscience of the truth, then you're going to begin to live contrary to the truth. Your conscience will then become hardened and it will not alert you to the dangers of your soul. Do you now understand why true, solid doctrine is so fundamentally important in your life? See, sometimes you guys will study the stuff. And you're like, man, this is this is so hard. This is, this is kind of boring. I mean, you know, we've got to study this stuff about God and everything. And you're in Sunday school. And y'all trying to find practical application on everything. You know, how's this going to help me raise my children? And how's it going to help me trade cars better and stuff like that? You know what you're supposed to be looking for? You're supposed to be looking for God, by the way. Why? Because as you know him, your conscience is informed. And your conscience being informed will act as an alarm system to keep you from doing stupid That's how the Christian faith works. So Paul says doctrine matters. It's a guide to life and it is what maintains a good conscience. So this is the commission of Timothy that he has to accept. You're being commissioned. 
The source of your commission is God himself. The substance is to wage a good warfare. And the strategy of this is by holding faith in a good conscience. How do you wage warfare? By constantly returning to the doctrine of the apostles and informing your conscience with the truth. So that Satan will have no room in your life and no room in your church and no room in your family to lead you into falsehood. Do you know why we say to young people, listen, uh, you ought not be playing that game, that video game all the time where y'all shooting each other and killing each other. And the answer always is, it's just a game. True. But you know what too much of that stuff does? It dulls your conscience. Some people watch stuff on TV over and over and over again. You know why you ought not do some of that stuff? You think, well, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to go out and do that. Of course you're not. But if you keep watching that stuff over and over, you know what happens? It dulls your conscience in that area. You've been putting falsehood. And Satan now has what we call a stronghold. Where that area of your life, you just don't respond. You don't recall from it like you used to. You, you learn to kind of just deal with it. You learn to excuse it a little bit. And the next thing if you're, you know, if you're not careful, you'd be doing it. That's the way that works. So that's why you have to be on guard. You have to, to guard that. If you don't, it'll affect your conscience. So you, you constant the, the warfare is always taking your time, taking your energy, and taking your effort and saying, I'm going to take the doctrine of the faith and I'm going to concentrate on that. I'm going to put that in my life. I'm going to put that in my mind. I want my conscience to be sensitive because of the word of God. I don't want it to be dulled. I don't want it to become uh, 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 unresponsive. To the things that are going on in this world. I want to always be sickened by sin. Especially my own. I want to always be alarmed and alerted. And, 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 and willing to just move away like a hot stove from, from sin. And that won't happen if you just put all these other things in your mind. And you're going to neglect the word of God. So it's up to you. It's, it's really up to you. You'll have to decide what you want to do with your own conscience. But Timothy here is being told, you've got to maintain a good conscience. Hold on to that. Maintain it. And it's not easy to do. Now, he says also this, as, a, as an officer in the army of the Lord, you, there's a catastrophe to avoid. In verse 19, he says, by rejecting this, that is, by refusing to hold on to the faith, which produces a good conscience, by rejecting that, what has happened some have made shipwreck of their faith. There's a catastrophe to avoid. Now, what is the cause of this catastrophe? By rejecting this. The, the word picture here is this. They threw truth overboard. You see, Paul had started out, he's really talking about the army, about the military. Now he switches to the Navy. And he says, look, that's right, David Brown, the Navy. Anchors away, big boy. So there we go. So he switched over. So here's what he's saying. By rejecting this, they've made shipwreck of their faith. What they've done is they've taken the, the, the truth of orthodoxy, the doctrine of the apostles, and they've just heaved it overboard. And so their lives now have no compass. And so you know what's going to happen. That, that ship is going to shatter on the rocks of falsehood and be splintered in a million pieces. 
They no longer have this compass as a guide for their life. And that's the cause of it. Whether it's through negligence, whether it's through apathy, or whether it's through a hundred other excuses. When we throw overboard the doctrine of the faith, it always results in catastrophe. Every time. The cause of it. They rejected. What are the consequences? They've made shipwreck of their faith. They just dashed their belief system to pieces. And now it's resulting in false teaching and immoral living. This is what brought these leaders to the place that they are at. These that have been trying to lead this church astray. How did they get there? They started out right. How did they get there? They took orthodoxy and they threw it overboard. They took the doctrine of the apostles. They threw it overboard and said, look, we've got something new and much more exciting. Oh, I just cringe. I, I, I still get the, the, the paper copy of, of a Christian book company. And they're selling all these books, you know. And sometimes I'll, I'll open it up and I'll look through there. And it's never anything, they don't sell anything scholarly. It reminds me that Christians don't read things worth reading. If they do read something that's, quote, Christian, it looks more like Beth Moore or something. Oops. So I'm looking through that and I'm thinking, dear God, here's what Christians read now. And I just throw it in a garbage can. It's almost like I don't want to touch that. That's what sells with people. What sells with people is things that cannot guide your life. Things that are not going to lead you to the truth. What sells is they take some idea out of the scripture and they formulate this whole concept around this one idea. And then they put it out in a little chart for you. And you're supposed to check it off and take steps or whatever it might be. And you feel so good about yourself. Because finally, by God's grace, you've learned how to get the casserole out of the oven in a Christian sort of way. It's just stupid. But that's what, you know, I've thought a hundred times about opening a Christian bookstore in our town. I've thought about it a hundred times. You know why I'm not going to do it? Because people wouldn't buy what I'd sell. They'd come in and ask for stuff that I'd be like, are you kidding me? That would be my response. Are you kidding me? Are you a Christian? You're going to read that? So I'm pretty sure that business wouldn't fly. The consequence is catastrophe, though. If you're going to feed on Jesus calling, if you're going to feed on that, I mean, to say it, that's baloney. That's not even close to truth. And you're going to feed on that junk and expect your life to be stable. Are you kidding? You're going to wreck it. Say, so, Pastor, how can you say such things like that? You're not a famous author. That person's a famous author. They've sold millions. Let me tell you something. Sarah Young ain't a pastor. She's not one. She hasn't been commissioned to do nothing except sell books. I'm just tired of that stuff among Christians where y'all are just so undiscerning about stuff. Does it teach the doctrine of the apostles? If it doesn't, throw it away. You don't need it. You'd be better off. You, hey, listen, man, y'all, y'all be better off just plunging into some good sin. At least you'd know the difference. It's a catastrophe to avoid. Then finally he says this to Timothy. There's a correction to apply. How do you correct this mess? Especially when it's leadership in your church. 
If you have leadership in your church that's leading you away from the doctrine of the apostles and the true teaching of the word of God and they're leading you into novelties and, and, and silly stuff that kind of thrills the flesh but doesn't have anything to do with the soul. What do, you, what do you do? Well, look what Paul says in verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's telling Timothy now, as, as, as a pastor of this church, you're going to have to take some action. And, and let me tell you how, how you do it. The means of correction. Paul says, here's the means whom I've handed over to Satan. Paul's already given him an example. He said, I've already got two of those rascals for you. I snatched them up by the hair and took them out of there. I've got two of them for you. So now you know what it looks like. So don't tell me it can't be done. I've already shown you how to do it. So what is Paul telling him? You got to hand them over to Satan. Let me, let me tell you something. The protection of your affiliation with a local church is real. Your spiritual protection and health is directly tied to the depth of your love for your local church. I have never seen anyone ever walk away from a local church and fare well as a believer. It just doesn't happen. They may say that they are, but listen to them for a while. Nutty as a fruitcake. They're all over the map. All over the place. They'll talk big grand things, but just watch how they live. It's just, it doesn't work. Here's the other thing. If you have family members, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you are firmly dedicated to the doctrine of the apostles and to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have family members that are not believers, guess what? They enjoy some of that spiritual protection because of you. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband. And the children of that household are sanctified by the believing parent. What does he mean? Does he mean that they get saved because of that? No, they're not saved. But what it does mean is that they are under the umbrella of the blessing of God because of you. There is a spiritual protection here. And so when you're removed from the fellowship of the church, guess what happens? Satan has a field day. He's been waiting for the opportunity and now he has it. So I, he says, I'm handling Jesus outlined this for us in Matthew 18. If you ever care to read it, you can find out what are the steps for church discipline. It has to happen. And so the means of correction. Now, what is the motive? Why would you do this? Because you're mean-spirited? No, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The word learn there means to, to, uh, to, to learn and be educated by pain. Now, my dad and my mom believed in that word. They believed that there, more than one occasion. Uh, for example, one time I, I didn't do the chores I was supposed to do. And my dad said, why didn't you water those cows? And I said, as kids will say, I forgot. And my dad said, well, that's too bad because I'm getting ready to give you something to help you remember. I forgot was not an acceptable answer. 
And so I forgot. And so I didn't forget again. There was something about that learning experience that helped me to remember the rest of my life. So Paul's saying sometimes this is the way it works. They have to learn through pain. So they train them through pain. Blaspheme here means to slander God. How have they been slandering God? They've been slandering God by claiming to be a believer, but yet living contrary to the ways of God. They've claimed that they're followers of Christ, but they've been living like an unbeliever. This is to slander God. This is to take his name and say to the world, this is the kind of God that he is. That he allows this kind of thing and he doesn't care how we live. That is, a, that is blasphemy. It's a slander God. And this kind of slandering of God is not a matter of the tongue. It's a matter of the life. And so when a person settles down in that kind of living... And decides that they don't care if they slander God. Then the church has to take action and say, well, I'll tell you what then. We're just going to turn you over to Satan and see how you like it. Because you haven't listened to anything else that we've had to say. Sometimes as Baptists we think the worst, oh, that it's the worst. That we, we think that a person has an individual American constitutional right to join our church. They do not. The authority for the church lies within the body itself, not within the individual. And so the body itself decides yes on the person and the body itself decides no on the person. And the body has loaned authority to the leadership of the church to initiate the excommunication of those who will not show that they're followers of Jesus. It is a crime against God that we have a church roll here of 1,800 people and we have an attendance of 300. It's a slander against God that we have that many people out there flying the flag of Jesus, but yet show absolutely no fruit. It's to slander God. What it's, to say, what it's saying to the world is God makes no difference in my life. He is not powerful. He is not life-changing. He is not life-transforming. He really doesn't save a soul. But I'm going to wear the t-shirt of Christian. And what we need to do is rip the t-shirt off and go, No, here's your, here's your burlap sack of Satanism. Now, go live. Say, Pastor, that's hard. No. Isn't it time to stand up for the name of God? Isn't it time that we worry about how Jesus feels about something for a change rather than some rogue person that at some point in time made some kind of crazy decision at 12 years old at a youth camp when they were half out of their mind from lack of sleep? Come on, people. This is different from that. This is not that kind of thing. So Paul's saying, you, Timothy, you're going to have to handle it. Now, can you imagine, Timothy? Here he is, this great church at Ephesus. I mean, this is like Bellevue Baptist or something. I mean, it's like Paul's going to drop him on there. Have at it, big boy. And so I I could just imagine Timothy just, he probably has ulcers. But Paul's saying, you've got to take care of this, son. You've got to jump in there and take care of it. Timothy's like, me? Yes, you. Paul, can't you come help me? I'm not coming. Take care of it. I'm commissioning you. Do it. And so Timothy has to take care of this. It's not a good thing when you become a pastor of a church, you got to take care of stuff. I always love it. I, I love pulpit committees. Sometimes I, 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 I like to just talk to them just for the fun of it. And then I, I like to think to myself how many times they just lied to me. Love it. 
They always present the case that the church is absolutely wonderful. And there are never any problems. I, you know, and I want to think to myself, I, I, you know, I never say this, but, but I've always wanted to say, do you think this is my first rodeo? Tell me what the problems are. And then I can tell you if I'm the guy that can address that. If everything is just wonderful, you don't need me. I'm not that kind of guy. Tell me what the problems are. So they never tell you what the problems are and you got to find them out yourself. But that's okay. We find them out. There are always problems. You just, you're looking for a church home today. Guess what? This church has problems. Come and add to them. It's people. People is just people. And so you always have people problems if you have people. If, you, if, if you're going to have animals, you're going to have to clean the stall out sometimes. It's just the way it works. And so people have problems. The church is not perfect. If you're looking for a local church, everything's perfect. You're never going to find one. It's not that way. But under God, what we do have to do as a church is, is this. We can't expect everybody to do everything perfectly all the time. We can't expect that of one another. But under God, we do have to do this. If people are going to blaspheme God by their unwillingness to hear from the church and to change their life and to repent toward God, then we need to cut them loose. We're Number one, we're lying to them because what we're saying, as long as they're a member here, is that we believe you're a believer. Really. Second thing we're doing is we're participating in the slander of God's name out there by allowing them to go around town and say to people, I'm a member of Chillicothe Baptist Church. I want to go behind them and go, no, you're not. And give a different church name. But I don't, I don't, I don't do that. So there's a means of correction here and there's a motive. The motive is not a mean one. What you are hoping is that the person comes to their senses and goes, wait a minute. This is not what I wanted. I didn't realize what it would be like to be out there living under the power of Satan. I need Jesus. That's what you're hoping happens. It's not so much like punishment. It is a hope for correction. Well, what are the, what's the conclusion? We've got to wrap this up. Okay, so the conclusion. What do we do with this? The, the question is for me and for you is this. Am I waging a good warfare? Am I waging a good warfare? How do I wage a good warfare? Am I firmly dedicated to learning and exploring and committing to my mind the doctrine of the apostles? Am I committed to that above all things? Because that's what informs my conscience. And that's what the conscience is what alerts me when things are not right. When something's trying to come into my life or something's around me, it's not quite right, it informs me. You can have a misinformed conscience, by the way, that will alert you about things that it ought not be alerting you about. You can become paranoid and suspicious of everything. That's the wrong kind of conscience. You need a conscience that's informed by the Word of God. That's how you wage the warfare. You have to constantly give attention to that. Are you doing so? For every Christian... True doctrine leads to pure life, always. You have to have the right doctrine in order to build a life that is pleasing to the Lord. You have to realize as a Christian that though this world with devils filled should threaten to endure us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. 
You must give yourself to a lifelong pursuit of the truth. If you have got, if you fall into this trap of reading books about Christianity instead of reading the book of Christianity, you need to put those other things down for a while and you need to fill your mind and life up with the Word of God. Some books or commentary things are helpful, they can be helpful to you, but they can also become a crutch. You need to devote yourself to the right reading of the Word of God. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ then. What do you do? So uh, do I wage the good warfare? No, you, you can't wage good warfare. You're on the wrong side. The warfare you're waging is against God. The Bible says of you, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are an enemy of God. You are in conflict with God. You have decided to wage war on God. You're on the wrong side. You've joined the side of the enemy. So I didn't mean to. I know, but you're born that way. Everybody's born on the wrong side. Everybody. And so what, what must you do? Well, here's the thing. Satan is working to blind your mind so that you will not believe what the Bible says about Jesus. He's constantly trying to blind your mind. He's constantly trying to dull your conscience so that you will not be alerted by sin. What do you do? You take the law and you read it. Read the Ten Commandments and align your life next to it and see how you fare. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and delivered you from slavery. I'll have no other God besides me. And you ask yourself, how many gods do I have? Number one, you. You're your own little idol. That's the main problem. God says, you'll have no other gods except for me. And you've decided to set yourself up as your own God. I'll decide what I want to do. I'll decide how much God I want. I'll decide how much Bible I want. I'll decide how much church I want. I'll decide how much I want to give. I'll decide what. And so you set yourself up as a little kingdom under yourself and a little God. No wonder you are at war with God. Because God will have none of it. So until you drop that. You can't even make it past the first commandment. You're in violation of God's commands from the get-go. So what, what do you do? You have to abandon that. You have to drop arms and just say, I surrender. I am no longer going to pursue that life. Well, the problem is that having pursued that life ever in your life, the penalty for it, because it's treason against God, the penalty is death. What are you going to do? If you surrender, you're going to be executed. What do you do? Well, the Son of God has come and He was executed in your place for your treason against God. And so if you'll trust in Him, if you'll put, throw your lot into Him, if you'll just follow Him as your Lord, as your King, as your Commander, if you'll do that, then what He did for you on the cross is applied to your life and you're cleared of the charge of treason. But you have to throw it all into Jesus. You have to give it all over to Him. It's not a mild mental thing that you decide it's a giving of your whole heart over to Him. And if you'll do that, then you'll no longer be at war with God, but you'll have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper here this morning. But let me, let me just offer a word of prayer. Okay, let's, let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you take the word. Help us to understand that we are in a battle. 
I pray, Father, for those today who are on the wrong side of that battle. And I ask you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you would just, by the Spirit of God, tenderize their heart with the Word. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.